0: I'm Dan Webster, film critic for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokesman.com.
1: And I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law
2: professor at Gonzaga University School of Law. And I'm Nathan Weinbender, also a film critic for Spokane Public
0: Radio. And welcome to Movies 101, the show that realizes that there is more to movie life than Oscar gold, though you likely won't hear anyone in Hollywood admit that. Oscar and All It Means holds a special significance this week, as both movies we'll be discussing were either made by or starring Oscar winners. The first is the animated feature The Boy and the Heron, which was written and directed by the great Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki. The second is May-December, a film whose director Todd Haynes is a past Oscar nominee and whose stars Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman are past Best Actress Oscar winners. Let's begin with a bit of Japanese fantasizing. Fantasy, of course, is Miyazaki's province. Whether he's dealing with a flying pig or a flying castle, fighting for the environment or to free parents from an evil spell, as he did with his masterpiece, Spirited Away, Miyazaki blends fantasy with parable to relate and elevate stories of the human experience. The boy and the heron falls into the same realm, following a young boy named Maito, who loses his mother to a raging inferno during World War II. Having moved three years later with his father to the Japanese countryside, where his munitions factory owner father has remarried to his late mother's younger sister, Natsuko, quiet, grieving, and resentful, Maito soon finds himself the object of evil spirits, all seemingly tied both to a strange talking gray heron and to his family lineage. All of it, too, poses a threat to his new stepmother, who is pregnant with Maito's future sibling, even as he feels the possibility that his real mother isn't dead and that he can somehow bring her back to life. Much of The Boy and the Heron plays as one of Miyazaki's parables, perhaps involving the war that nearly destroyed Japan, and much of it is a jumble of strange, sometimes lovable creatures, plus more than a bit of loose plotting but the animation is as good as ever. And if this is the 82-year-old Miyazaki's final film, as he has been promising for the past several years, it's a fine one to go out on. And it
2: does feel, in a lot of ways, and for long stretches, like a compendium,
0: a greatest of, hit, so yeah, to speak. The images yeah, images and themes. It was his uh, era's tour. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Miyazaki's era's tour. The boy the hair, and the heron. You heard it here first. But even just, you know, the young boy going to live out in the middle of the country. That's uh, like feels Spirited like, Away. But it feels like My Neighbor Totoro as yes. well. Yes, um, Spirited Away, of course, because mm-hmm. he's jumping around from one strange setting to another. The themes involving World War II are very similar to what he explored in his last film a decade ago, which was The Wind Rises, and so it's kind of all mixed up in there. And as far as the tone, and I guess the plot, for lack of a better word, of The Boy and the Heron, I was actually reminded of his more cerebral movies, like Howl's Moving Castle, Mm -hmm. which are not typically my favorite of Miyazaki's work, because it does kind of feel like it's mostly just random incident and we were talking before the show about what the possible meaning and overall theme of the movie might be because it does kind of seem to be all over the place and open for interpretation. Maybe we can dig into it a little bit. But there was a long stretch in the middle of The Boy and the Heron where I thought this kid is just kind of bouncing from one thing to another. And I I lost interest a little bit. And you keep getting introduced to all of these new supporting characters, you know, within the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie. And you're like, oh, okay, who's this now? Mm -hmm. And so it does kind of feel almost like a fairy tale that you're sort of making up on the fly. And maybe that was kind of the vibe he was going for. But, I mean, beyond all of that, I can't quibble too much because it's a Miyazaki movie and the visual imagination is what's most important here. I mean, he, more so than probably any other animator, just has this knack for creating strange creatures and characters in the corners of the frame where you're going, what's that thing doing over there? And sometimes they're creepy and sometimes they're cute. You get both of those things Mm -hmm. in The Boy and the Heron where you're like, okay, that is – the figure they created to sell the merchandise, like the little white jelly bean creatures that kind of float in the air. Oh, the the, embryos? Yeah, uh, (laughs) those are the things that they're going to make plush toys out of. The heron (laughs) creature, maybe not so much because he's a little bit unsettling. But I like the fact that he's still kind of blending those tones that Mm -hmm. I think younger kids might be confused and scared by the boy and the heron, but older kids, I think, are probably going to be enchanted by it. Also maybe a little bit confused by it because I certainly was both of those things while watching it.
1: I think it's important to say that we all saw it at an early screening Mm -hmm. in the IMAX. And I do think that The Boy and the Heron is one of those films that you should see on the big screen. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, Well, and we should also mention that we saw it in the original Japanese language with English subtitles. They're also releasing it in an English dub. So if maybe you do have kids that can't keep up with subtitles, that might be the one that you would opt for. Agree. And
1: I think I've heard so many different interpretations of what is going on here. But, Nathan, as you point out, we do see these recurring themes throughout his whole film, Oeuvre. And here, because it's happening in, like, 1944 or something Mm -hmm. like that uh, originally, and so – I thought it was making a broader statement about the war and so forth. As, and as, mo- think as
0: many, many Japanese animated movies do oh, yeah. in one right. way or another. Right. Akira being a Grave of one. the Fireflies. Yes, yes, well, yes. and
1: in this movie you get the impression that the boy is not only grieving for his mother, but he's also lamenting the fact – that he couldn 't do anything, he couldn 't rescue her, he couldn 't save her, because he keeps replaying this happening over and over in his mind,, yeah. and so then you wonder if that 's metaphorical in a sense mm-hmm. in terms of what, what you know we could have done differently we need to point so out forth.
0: biographically that Miyazaki was born in one thousand nine hundred and forty one so he did as a child experience some of the war. I mean his father was a munitions factory worker, he lost his mother, so all those themes are in the movie. And I was tearing up the first 10, 12 minutes of the movie simply because I felt like this is going to be a story about a boy who's lost the most important person in his life and who's just feeling this grief. But it was also the feeling of the war, also. Yeah. Because I, I was born in 47, so World War II was a big part of my childhood, at least the reliving of the war. So all that really worked. I did get confused as we went on, as you pointed out ably, Nathan. The movie kind of goes all over the place and brings in characters that were going, Who is this now? And it isn't explained <laughs> until like the final ten minutes of the movie, oh, this person was representing this and this is this. Right. And, and even then I don't know, know if I it quite compl- got com- all yeah. Of it, yeah,
1: Well, and then there was this sort of storyline where the aunt becomes the stepmom and you're sort of like right. what so what's <laughs> happening with this? Because yeah. so she actually seemed like a pretty nice person. I mean, she wasn't like um, a matrina malevola who was trying to Voiced this kid off to some other caretakers. Although, when we talk about caretakers, we have to talk about the aunties. Yes, um, yes. Oh, yeah, there was yeah, this yeah. whole, like, coterie of older
2: women. And I hope they were, like, 210 years old because they certainly <laughs> were drawn that way. And, and again, going back to just the design of The Boy and the Heron and other Miyazaki movies, I mean, each of those old women has such a distinct personality Mm -hmm. and look. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing I admire about this. And I think you might be onto something with the idea that this is some kind of expression about the reverberations of trauma following the war. I mean, like you said, it's all over his filmography, especially. But I also think once we get to the end and there is some kind of explaining going on, it kind of reminded me a little bit of something like A Wrinkle in Time, where Mm -hmm. it's sort of, you know, like... Philosophy for kids, in a way. It's sort of about being a child and learning about the inner workings of the world mm-hmm. and then understanding that you may never understand mm-hmm. them. You know, and it's obviously shot through that fantasy lens, but I think it's also about what it's like to go through the world and how the way you choose to live affects the world at large and affects right. other people around yes. you. I think that's sort of what he's doing. Well, and that was at. the
1: point of the little sculpture, yes. you know, the blocks that were made. And then also at one point, our protagonist, like, actually engages in some self-harm. And so yeah. that, again, was yeah, sort of... Yeah, I an, found a, that disturbing. I yeah. thought it was, like, a way to control things. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, so he was going to control the narrative even if it wasn't the way that things had actually happened or right. occurred.
2: That he was beat up by these other kids in the neighborhood. Yeah, and you have to wonder if sort of the metaphysics of it all is some kind of coping mechanism or a self defense in a way that, Mm -hmm. you know, do you take this movie literally or don't you? I suppose you can decide for yourself Mm -hmm. because I think there probably is a like a logical, reasonable explanation for most of what happens. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't want to sound like I'm nitpicking because I think the movie is more about the journey than the destination, Mm -hmm. I guess. I mean, it's just Miyazaki hasn't made a movie in a decade Mm -hmm. and he keeps threatening to quit, but he he hasn't yet. So if this is his last movie, I mean, it'll be a tremendous loss, but the work that he's left behind, I mean, it's such a pleasure to get lost in one of his worlds. And
0: I think that, as we've pointed out in our discussion, that... Even if you get lost in the story, you can just sit back and look at yes. some of the animation and just go, how are they doing that? I mean, it, And it's,
2: it, it's hand-drawn it, for the most part, right. too, which is such a rarity these days. Right. right.
0: Yeah, hand-drawn, computer-generated sure. also, yeah. but it's just absolutely beautiful. It has, like, that watercolor effect sometimes. Yeah, yeah it's just gorgeous. Yes. And that was our discussion of the Hayao Mizaki animated feature, The Boy and the Heron. This is Movies 101, and it's time to take a short break. Before we go, remember that you can access podcasts of Movies 101 by going online at SpokanePublicRadio.org. While there, check out the individual reviews that Nathan and I write. Don't do it now, though, because we'll be right back to look at Todd Haynes' film, May, December. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. And we're back. This is Movies 101, and I'm your host, Dan Webster. During the first half of the show, Mary Pat Art, Nathan Weinbinder, and I discussed The Boy and the Heron, the latest animated feature by the great Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki. Let's now turn to something completely different, the Todd Haynes-directed drama May-December, which stars a pair of past Best Actress Oscar winners, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman. More in Portman portray, respectively, a woman living in Savannah, Georgia, named Gracie, and the actress, Elizabeth, who wants to portray Gracie in a feature film. The reason why a film is being made about Gracie is because, like the real-life case of Burien, Washington elementary school teacher Mary Kay Letourneau, Gracie once had a sexual relationship with one of her students, was sent to prison for it, but once out, ended up marrying the boy and having a family with him. It is now more than two decades later... Gracie is still married to Joe, played by Charles Melton, and Elizabeth has come to their house, too, she says, do research for her role. Her presence, though, causes a disruption in the family dynamic, something that is already being shaken because the last two of the couple's three children are about to set off for college. Haynes, who has worked with Moore before, most notably in 1995's Safe and 2002's Far From Heaven, Gets good performances from his entire cast, from both his lead actresses, certainly, but also from the relative newcomer, Melton. The film suffers, though, from Haynes' penchant for curious artistic choices, a glaring example being the film's irritatingly intrusive musical score, and from the screenplay's snatch from the headlines, sense of exploitation for little purpose.
1: That may be the most challenging aspect <laughs> of watching May-December. Also, one of the challenges for our local audience in watching this film is it's really hard to erase all of the stories about Mary Kay Letourneau from the 1990s because, you know, it was a Washington state case. It was a Washington state situation. And it dragged on for several years as they were labeling her as a sexual predator and so forth. And then, she was
0: having children while in prison and Right. Blah, blah, blah. And so
1: you sort of have to put that aside because this film is representative of what transpired and it's not. So, for example, I appreciated many aspects of this, most notably the acting performances of the two lead actresses, because I think in May-December... In particular, Nally Portman is actually kind of a bad actress. And so you're trying to figure out if <laughs> she's a that... good
0: actress playing a bad actress. Right, exactly. Yes, yeah. So you're
1: trying to figure out how much of that, I mean, what's the actual meaning of that? So the fact that these people were willing to allow her to come into their lives so many years later when they were sort of flying below the radar just seems immensely improbable, except for one factor that I'll raise later. The second thing is. Is they live in Savannah, Georgia, in a house that's probably worth four million dollars, <laughs> and so there's no explanation whatsoever. Yeah, there
2: is. They talk about the fact that they basically sold, I think it was their wedding photos to like inside editions so they could pay for this house. Well, I
1: don't know if that would have
2: got them there, <laughs> well, you know, whatever. Inflation
1: okay, whatever. yeah, okay. So they were taking advantage Another of it. Fantasy. So, so that is kind of a recurring theme. So, when do you like rely on this? For the good that it can bring financially and otherwise. And when do you try to put it in, you know, hide it under the couch cushions? And so that's sort of a recurring. For basic
0: survival, yeah. Right.
1: That's sort of a recurring theme. But I was troubled throughout this film because there is this underlying thing that needs to be dealt with. And I didn't know how Haynes was gonna play it out. But finally Charles Melton, who I also believe turned in a great performance, and you know, he's sort of one of the pretty boy O C kind of characters that we're accustomed to seeing. He was on Riverdale, which I did not
2: see, but right. uh, that's so what I, Wikipedia told me. Right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Good to know. But <laughs> at one point, his sort of character and performance changes significantly. Yes. And I thought that was probably the high point of the film, was his trying to piece together everything that's happened. Yeah. He's so going
0: it, toe-to-toe with Moore and right. he holds his own, boy. Oh, yeah.
1: Right. And so that's why this film, in some respects... Has some similarity to the boy and the heron, as improbable <laughs> as that seems. But in the end, I don't think that this completely worked. There were aspects of it that I thought, you know, like I said, I appreciated. But there was something about it at its core, and it could have been some of the choices that Haynes makes that didn't quite come together
2: for me. Oh, I really loved this.
0: Of course, movie. you did. Uh, of
2: course, and we I predicted knew. that we did. too. We, we predicted we it totally. It is such a <laughs> Sly, slippery movie, isn't it? Like every is it a time, comedy? Um, it well, be, I've I have heard talk people. about that because I think just when you think you've got a handle on what genre this is supposed to be, who the hero and who the villain is, what exactly everybody is up to and what their emotional motivations are, the movie gives you another detail that completely upends everything that you've thought about any of the people and the entire situation. It's an unsettling movie in so many ways. I mean, it's a challenging movie in all of the things that you talked about. It's weirdly funny at times. Correct. But I think yes. it also has a genuine empathy for all of the people that have gotten tangled up in this horrific thing, especially Joe, the Charles Melton character. Well, and I totally Joe. agree with you because I have seen so much praise for his performance. He just won the Gotham Award. He won the New York Film Critics Association Award for Supporting Actor. And I was waiting for the moment when that performance would would bloom. Because it's a lot of
0: understated performance all the way until that moment. And
2: it's a movie, May, December, it's a movie about performance. I mean, not just the way that these people are playing each other and playing roles within their lives into one another, but the very nature of acting, because part of the entire reason these people are together is because the Natalie Portman character wants to study the Julianne Moore character. And become and her, way, And the ways yes. in which she subtly becomes her in scenes is really fun and fascinating. <laughs> and, creepy. And, and, and creepy. And creepy. And, and, and so this is like one of those Todd Haynes melodramas, but it also, it's winking at you the entire time at the same time. And I want to go back to the music too, that you called intrusive. I loved the music by Marcello Zarvos. And it's partially adapted from the Michelle Legrand score for the old Joseph Losey movie, uh, The Go-Between, which is also about a strange love triangle that develops Mm -hmm. and we don't know how to feel about it. So yeah, this is a movie- that I think a lot of people are probably going to have problems with May, December. I also want to call out the screenplay by Sammy Burt. She's a first-time writer, and I think this is just such a clever movie, and it leaves you with so many questions. This is a mystery movie in so many ways because at the end, and it kind of ends with a punchline Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to give it away, but it just kind of makes you go, wait, that's what all this was for in the end? It's a movie that I have been thinking about constantly, and I can't wait to watch it again. And knowing it where streaming. it ends up. And it's streaming on Netflix, so you can watch it.
1: The other thing about the film is the fact that – and again, it's hard to erase Shades of Mary Kay Letourneau from one's mind. Because, I don't think it
2: wants you to erase no. Well, OK. Uh, <laughs> I think it I wants you to try- be thinking okay, about it. OK. So
1: that. here's the deal. Because Gracie seems so clueless and so oblivious, and you're sort of like, how could this person really be – Like that. And there's a scene in which she goes with the Natalie Portman character to have her daughter try on dresses for oh, yeah. graduation. Oh. And that scene was just
2: like, whoa. Such I mean, that passive was such, aggressive. And such, so you, cringeworthy. Did you notice that the two dresses the daughter tries on, Julianne Moore is wearing variations on those dresses later in
0: the movie. I know. So it's and that more was, mirroring going. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. And the oldest daughter is the one who, she knows exactly what's going and on. And then
2: we haven't even talked about the son. And the son that's also, because all these people haven't really ventured out beyond the town. Where all of this happened. Still Although the older there. girl goes to college. Yes, yeah. it's true. And it seems like the two twins want to get away. Oh, yeah. But the son that comes in, and he upends everything too, because mm. he keeps giving details to the Natalie Portman character that we don't know what to do with because oh, we're not sure if it's true. The son from the first marriage, yes. Georgie. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that,
0: that was the moment Man. Mary Pat and I looked at each other and went, That's the best moment in this movie. I, I mean, he and, is so good. And you don't
2: know what to do with it because. Mm-mm. Julianne Moore then kind of comes in and undercuts it, too. Absolutely. And so the whole, so like your head is spinning because you don't know which direction to look. You don't think you can trust any of these people because most of them are up to no good. You know, well,
1: and go I ahead. think that sort of channeling Mary Kay Letourneau, the infamous television interview that she and her husband, her victim, her husband yeah. uh, did with. Villy Falau
0: is his he, name. Yeah. The real person. Yeah. yeah,
1: I mean, she did seem like she was. Unbelievably naive. I mean, almost to the point where you were sort of questioning her kind of development. You know that she had this arrested development of some sort. Right.
0: She was thirty-four years old, and she was claiming she didn't know that it was against the law. Well, and the Julian. And she was
1: also his second-grade teacher. Right.
0: And the Julian Moore character. The mm-hmm. big emotional
2: confrontation between her and Charles Melton is when we kind of see that facade slip, mm-hmm. and we realize that. Both of these people are behaving like children to mm-hmm. one another. Their relationship is so weird. Well, because sometimes um, and, it's parental. And predatory. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And
0: other times, yeah. I don't want to say that I didn't have a good time in this movie, that, that I wasn't interested in watching May, December all the way through. I mean, I sat there with my eyes wide open. It has that tabloid fascination to it It's just that some of the times Todd Haynes, the complaint I have against him is the same complaint people have against Wes Anderson. Oh, he's making a movie. He knows what he's doing all the while. Look, he's going, oh, I'm so cool. I'm Wes Anderson. I think Todd Haynes does the same thing. There's the moment, an intrusive moment. She opens up the refrigerator door and it goes, you know, and I just went, what? Uh, Come on. So that's the problem I had with it. And also we have to remember that there were real people involved here this is not a made-up movie. It's a fictional representation of real people and there are real feelings. It's true, but I
2: don't think the movie is exploitative in the way that you do. I think that it does have empathy for certain people in this equation, especially the Charles Melton character. By the end of the movie, my heart was breaking for that guy, which mm -hmm. is not what I was expecting from what seemed like it was going to be kind of a campy tete-a-tete between these two great actresses. It's so much deeper than that. There's a lot more going on, and it's almost like Todd Haynes is doing those things to trick you and to kind of like mess with your equilibrium to think you know you're getting just another Todd Haynes movie you're getting another Todd Haynes
0: movie but it's deeper than what you suggest and that was our discussion of Todd Haynes's film May December and this is movies 101 I'm Dan Webster and earlier in the show Nathan Weinbinder Murray Pat Truthart and I discussed the animated Japanese feature The Boy and the Heron let's take this moment to thank Cassie Fox for both producing and engineering the show and we thank you to our loyal listeners We invite you back next week, same time, same spot on the radio dial, when we'll again check out all the best that cinema has to offer wherever we can find it. Until then, consider these words from the director, Peter Jackson. To get an Oscar would be an incredible moment in my career. There is no doubt about that. But the Lord of the Rings films are not made for Oscars. They are made for the audience. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio.
2: The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101.